What's up, Video Landers? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. A quick reminder, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Video Land. Tonight, I talked with Australian filmmaker Andrew Leovold about his documentary, The Search for Wing Wing. Andrew and I talked about his obsessive quest to find the truth behind what happened to the real-life 2'9 Filipino James Bond Wang Wang. The documentary is a detective story. It's a, it's a biopic. It's a Filipino B-film history lesson. It's one of my favorite experiences this year. Please welcome Andrew Leovold. Andrew, what's up, man? Hey, lovely to be here. Thanks for joining us tonight, man. Uh, where are you calling from? Um, right now, I've just got back to Australia after running around, God, I think about four continents <laughs> in the last five months. Uh, so you caught me one of those rare moments where I'm not living out of a suitcase. Damn, we've been messaging each other uh, for weeks and we finally made this happen. Time zones be damned. Uh, exactly. And, uh, man, I'm, I'm glad I've got the mental space to be able to construct a sentence for you. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes anyway. I'm glad you still wanted to have this conversation with me after, uh, I was messaging you at uh, two in the morning in Australia. Yeah. Just, um, never, never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> or I will track, I will track you down and beat you like a dog. Right on, man. I promise, man. No worries. Because uh, what time is it there? It's 8 p.m. Um, in the States. Uh, it's just gone on 11 a.m. in um, Sunshine Coast in, in Queensland. Well, damn, I'm ready so for... So I'm, like, uh, yeah, I'm... I'm like 20 minutes walk from the beach right now. Um, I've got the mountains in the background. It's a pretty damn nice place. But, uh, you know, I've, I've just been in the rice paddies of Cambodia recently. <laughs> You know, oh wow! In the in the frozen tundra of Canada, and uh, on a crowded Mexican subway, getting my, you know, my wallet pickpocketed. So, <laughs> you know, right now, a little bit of calm is uh, just exactly what I need. Well, it's uh, it's eight p.m. here. I'm feeling a little cozy. I just poured me some uh, Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, and I'm waiting. I'm ready to talk some wing wing. Well, bourbon's not just a breakfast drink, so uh, I totally understand. I should be joining you. <laughs> So, Andrew, um, a few months ago, yeah. I was scrolling through my Facebook feed, and I came across your name attached to an article titled The Search for Wing Wing, um, and I've been fascinated ever since. I just watched your documentary with a friend earlier this week. Absolutely loved it, but for our listeners tonight who haven't watched it, who is Wing Wing? Well, he was um, the two-foot-nine James Bond of the Philippines. That's, that's the easy answer. Um, the more complicated answer is he was a pop culture phenomenon in the Philippines and, and to a lesser extent around the world in the early 80s, uh, who was a real-life secret agent, um, black belter, <laughs> stunning plaything of the Marcos family, and then was completely forgotten and, you know, basically died uh, alone, sick and forgotten. And um, just the, the fact that I saw that movie, For Your Hide Only, dubbed into English on Australian video, um, completely changed the way that I saw cult cinema, you know, that uh, all of a sudden there was this mystery that needed to be solved. And even, you know, this, this started even before the internet. And then when the internet came along, um, people were basically making up facts about Wang Wang because there were no facts um, 
to be attached to the Wang Wang story. And so I just became fascinated with this um, urban legend uh, whose mystery seemed to, to grow even with the advent of the internet to the point where the Chuds do the Wang Wang rap and there's, you know, like two million hits on it, but still no one knew his real name. So, I mean, the, the, this is where lifetime obsessions grow from. You know, these, these uh, you know, fascinating, weird anomalies um, that even in the age of unlimited access to information, you still can't solve. Well, I'm so glad you went digging in the Philippines for this story, man, because it is a fascinating story. Uh, again, I love the documentary, um, but let's let's go back a little bit. Uh, before your Wing Wing quest, uh, you owned and managed Australia's largest cult video store, Trash Video. Is that correct? Uh, yep, 95 to 2010. So we had a good 15-year run. Nice, nice. But, uh, you know, the, the, the problem is, you know, internet killed the video shop. Oh, yeah. And uh, we were a rental store, so um, as the internet continued its steamroller run over over um, 90s pop culture, um, the idea of a video rental store just kind of ceased to make any sense anymore because people were either downloading or buying. And so a little independent shop even even a specialist shop like trash video that used to specialize in the old the unusual the obscure and the forgotten um really didn't have a place in the modern world anymore so it's kind of sad it just uh slowly um drove me into bankruptcy basically and uh, luckily i had a luckily i had a um uh, a plan b and that was to go into movie making um and at the time, around 2010, uh, I think I'd, I'd been making social Wang Wang for about four years. And at that point, it looked like I would never finish it. I would never become a filmmaker. And so I basically fell in a hole for two years um, until uh, the fateful trip of 2012, where I came across Imelda Marcos. And I got her on film talking about how much she loved Wang Wang. And I realized, holy crap, you know, even though people are telling me that I will never finish the documentary, I had the money shot right there. Oh, and man. Meld, I was talking about Wang Wang. And I realized, holy crap, you know, I don't have to go for government funding or, or private funding. I can go the Kickstarter route and um, finish the film that way. And in the process, you know, I, I changed careers from video shop jerk to um, filmmaker jerk. And uh, here I am. <laughs> yeah, and I tell you what, man, um, it's so intriguing when you got to that part of the documentary when you're talking to the Empress, you know? So it's such an intriguing part of that documentary. But, uh, so well, yeah, I mean, that, that was another urban legend. You know, when, when people would talk about Wang Wang, they'd say, oh, you know, he he recorded a, a, a karaoke duet with Imelda Marcos. And, you know, there are all the Marcos connections because uh, everyone's fascinated with <laughs> the former dictatoress and her shoe collection. <laughs> and the idea of her collecting midget secret agents as well was you know, <laughs> just bizarre. But it turned out that it was true. You know, I, I, first of all, I tracked down um, Imelda's daughter, Aimee, who was also involved with the film business. <laughs> And she said, oh, yeah, Wang Wang was a constant visitor to the to the palace. Wow. Oh, yeah, my mother adored him, so did my brother Bong Bong. <laughs> and I thought, man, like, that's amazing, the idea of him dressing up in a little jester suit. Yeah. Doing a dance for the for the dictator and dictator. 
Pedras of the Philippines was just too good to be true. Oh, hell yeah. That's the only way that I'm going to prove that one way from the daughter's mouth is track down Imelda herself. So wildly enough, you know, back in 2012, uh, I thought that the Wang Wang documentary was dead in the water by then, and I decided to start a second documentary about the Marcos' funding porn back in the 80s. So that, that's that's the new film. Oh, but wow. I can talk about that later. So I thought, right, I'm going to track down Imelda, I'm going to sit her down, and I'm going to ask her a question. After asking her about, you know, porn dictators, I'm going to ask her, what do you remember about Wang Wang? And she looked at me and she said, the midget <laughs> she'd forgotten that i'd already sent her the questions yeah and i said yeah yeah wang wang what do you remember about him and she looked really confused for a second and then she said he made us laugh <laughs> and i thought holy shit i'm getting this out of Amelda's mouth and then she said something like completely amazing and i know that this was totally off the cuff because she'd forgotten the question she said you know he um entertained us he gave so much of himself, even though he had nothing. And what a talent. And then she said, you know, I salute him. And I thought, oh my God, the, the, head, the top of my head completely blew off at that moment. <laughs> and I realized that I had something extraordinary. And that was going down this weird rabbit hole into the heart of Filipino weirdness. Oh, yeah, and you nailed it, man. Moment, there's, there's a connection with the Wang Wang story. And, and then... You know, much later, I thought about, um, you know, because I, I got criticized for spending about five minutes of the film on Imelda. People were saying, like, that has absolutely nothing to do with the Oh, Wang man, I think it's the heart of that, man. But, I, you know, my, my argument is, well, you know, basically you have in Imelda a perfect um, macrocosm picture of yeah. what was happening to Wang Wang. Yeah. Imelda did to the country what Wang Wang's producers did to Wang Wang. And it speaks so much about um, the way that things work in the Philippines and that Wang Wang is a victim of that, um, you know, power paradigm, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And you can't get a greater example of the haves than Imelda Marcos. Well, you know it, what I mean? Yeah, and then it, it takes it just from a, a doc to, you know, from a, a biopic to this little history lesson, man, which I really enjoyed, man. It makes it the real deal, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the, the thing about Wang Wang is, you know, yes, he's a, a, a weird little pop culture icon. And yes, he was um, a figure who was exploited. He was in exploitation cinema, but he was exploited himself. But he is also, you know, representative of so much more. I mean, you know, you can you can tell the entire history of Philippine cinema by the connections with Wang Wang. He's kind of like this central figure in a much bigger story. And I think that much bigger story surrounding Wang Wang's saga is where some of the really interesting stuff lies and um and and yeah everything that i put in the film was deliberate like there's um there's very little in there that is accidental and even the way we constructed the film it's it goes from what seems kind of odd yet familiar um then goes into these ever decreasing circles so that you get the absolute um intimate details of Wang Wang's life towards the end and you can't get more into it than going to the house where he was born and then the place where he died 
Um, So what starts off as a kind of cartoon version of a karate kicking midget then um, travels in these ever-decreasing circles into a a really heartbreaking story of a fragile little human being. And so you you are on the same journey that I am, going from um, what I first saw, which was, you know, the image of Wang Wang kicking someone in the nuts and then running between (laughs) the legs, um, to the point where I'm standing in front of the place where he was born, and where he died, yeah. and putting my hand on his his grave. Wow! And actually realizing that I was able to get as close as I could possibly get to the wailing story with actually packing the grave open, <laughs> pulling his coffin out. Yeah. So that that, that was really quite uh, quite moving for me, and and the end of probably about a twenty something year saga, uh, which started in the early nineties and ended. 2013 with the um, the premiere in Manila of Search for Wang Wang, but even then, you know, spent the last four years on the road taking Wang Wang around the world. So I mean, the little guy still hasn't finished with me. I mean, I, I finished the book, which I thought was the final word in Wang Wang. Now I discover this week that there's a fifteenth Wang Wang film. Oh, nice! Like I've discovered another. So I'm going to have to completely rewrite the damn book. Wow. <laughs> second edition. <laughs> I found a, the script to a Wang Wang film that has been, you know, lost for 40 years. I found that in the archives uh, about two weeks ago in Manila. Wow. So it's it's like a, it's a story that keeps on demanding to be told. And it seems like I'm the one who has to tell it because, you know, for the fate has chosen me as the person <laughs> to tell that the story of Wang Wang and also that much wider story of um, Philippine culture and history and yeah. and, uh, and film culture. Now, are all of his films archived in the Philippines? Hell no. Really? God, no, man. Like, um, up, up until last week when I thought that there was 14 films, um, seven of those films no longer exist in any form. So that's half of Wang Wang's filmography gone wow. forever. We, we believe there is a possibility that they're in the producer's house in Manila, but she lives in, in California. And you couldn't get a hold of her and for the documentary, no, right? No, she refused to talk to me from, from the moment that I went to California in 2008, rang her and told her that I was coming from that moment on. She's refused to talk to me for one reason or another. Hmm. So that's nine years of complete radio silence from the Cabalias family. Well, wow. you think that? Do you think they're? I mean, are I they mean, embarrassed? I wanted to talk to her, you know. Yeah. And she to be interviewed in person, but she, um, yeah, kind of silence came over the entire Cabalias affair. So I can't say I, I didn't try. And I mean, I've sent her about two hundred emails since then, saying, "Can you please um, agree to be a part of this documentary?" Nothing. No reply. Zero. Wow. Zero content. Well, how? And, uh, if you watch, I think there's, there's probably a reason. Yeah. Well, how many of these films are accessible? Because I was on, uh, I watched Wing Wing through Amazon, and then they have the Impossible Kid on there, uh, for your height only, and then um, the West one is. So, how many other ones are would be accessible to me? Well, you, you've got those three dubbed into English films, uh-huh. and uh, they're, they're the easiest ones to find. I mean, they're all over YouTube, 
um, archive.org. There are, I, um, we brought out the Wild Bar Wang with um, Search for Wang Wang on Australian DVD. And for your height only, an impossible kid usually get released as a double bill elsewhere on DVD. So they're the easy ones. Then you get the Tagalog language ones. Uh, sometimes you can find uh, the second Western, the best in the West, <laughs> on, uh, on YouTube. It sometimes uh, pops up there. But it's, there's no, um, no subtitles whatsoever. And so it's it's hard going if you're you know a gringo like us. Uh, then there's a, a gay disco comedy musical called Starry Rye. Oh wow! Uh, I managed to get, I managed to get hold of that through a, a torrent tracker in the Philippines. There's a there's a third one he did with Dolphy called The Crick Brown Fox. It's like a spy comedy, but I, I was watching the very last copy in existence and it just turned into static so i think i killed um <laughs> the only surviving copy of that film <laughs> in the tv arc. um there's a there's another one uh, another disco comedy called um, legs katawan babay it stars the filipino village people and it was directed by way wing's boss out of fuel height only wow. the, the real james bond of the philippines um tony ferrer that one is insane. It's like, can't stop the music, but with spies, guns, uh, girls in bikinis. Uh, the Filipino village people did not get the memo. <laughs> that the, the gay joke. They thought that riding around on motorbikes and denim and leather made them the most heterosexual males in Damn. the Philippines. Wang <laughs> <laughs> so, makes this amazing cameo in the, in the last five minutes when they're doing this line dancing disco number he like somersaults onto stage <laughs> sits on the singer's shoulder and starts fist bumping the air to the music so I, t- I took those three those three films Starry Ride The Best in the West Legs Katawan Babay cut them down to a 90 minute compilation and toured Europe and North America with that um, in a I subtitled them and, and called the program The Lost Films of Wang Wang so I mean you, you can't see that other than me bringing it out of my box of tricks. Legs cut the one bye-bye. We rescued from a TV station that was getting bulldozed. So that, that was literally rescued from the rubble of a TV station. Um, that one, I don't think I'm going to let out of the archives. Wow. But then this week, a Hong Kong film from 1981 called Ordinance 17 turned up and Wang Wang plays this midget assassin. Mm. <laughs> in a, in a Hong- into English it's just bonkers oh wow so uh, yeah that that one I, I had to promise never to share uh, <laughs> I got it from a rabid collector in Germany who said no way Jose will you ever share this one I thought oh crap here we go yeah yeah so uh, so yeah so other than the three English language films it's rough going on Thank you. but um there are there are eight films that are in some kind of um some kind of existence okay. somewhere. Half of them are sitting on my hard drives and, and, and won't be allowed out. But, uh, but uh, it's, it's like a never-ending journey for a, for a serious wingologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, a, I have a two-part question for you. So do you remember your yeah. first wing-wing experience and what is your favorite wing-wing film? Is it one that is accessible to us? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the obvious one. It's Fuel Height Only, which awesome. is the single greatest film that 
ever was made. That it was the single greatest cinematic experience that anyone could ever experience <laughs> on the planet. Um, I mean, I, I remember watching like a 10th generation VHS bootleg in the early 90s, and that was the moment where I went, holy crap, this is the, you know, the low watermark <laughs> of weird cinema. Uh, it just so happened that I was consciously watching it as a Filipino spice spoof and realized that half the faces in that film I recognized from, you know, Eddie Romero films and Sergio Santiago films, who I, who I thought was Mexican, and um, realized that all these B films I'd been watching, they, they'd all come out of this um, film factory in the Philippines that was pumping out one weird film gem after the other. And so in that one viewing experience, I became obsessed with Wang Wang and I, I made a, a conscientious effort to try and track down uh, every weird Filipino B-film that I could find. And the more I watched, the more those weird films made sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, like, this, this filming universe opened itself up to me and... Um, you know, I, I, I must have watched, you know, at least 2,000 Filipino films now. Damn. It just doesn't end. It just never ends. And the more I watch, the more I find. And, um, you know, I, I think I've got about another four or five books to come out of uh, all of the research that I've done. And I've definitely, you know, since Search for Wang Wang, I've completed one documentary on Rudy Fernandez, another dead Filipino action star. Uh, the new documentary is about Marcos and the porn connection. And um, who knows? I mean, we, we're thinking about doing a film about the Filipino stuntmen who mm. were the single greatest stunt guys, you well, know, in, yeah. in film history. Well, well question, so, ab question about that, I mean... Because I'm watching this, and I was telling my friend, I mean, this is like 1980s. I'm like, you know, Wing Wing must have, you know, gone through hell, man, because they didn't have a stunt double for him, did they? Um, sometimes they would have a dummy. <laughs> and you could see that when they, were, when they were pushing him off the top floor of a hotel yeah. with an umbrella. <laughs> that, that that's a dummy slapping against the side of the building thank god yeah thank god well what about the, what about that scene when they put him in a cage and they throw him over the boat into the water i think that's a dummy it has to be a dummy because you know there's there's no way that they were going to be able to put a hook on that cage and drag him out of, well i'm out sure of, there, i'm sure there's not too much red tape in the philippines in the 1980s for stuntmen you know no, that's true. You had to be the top of your game, otherwise you would not survive. <laughs> Jesus. I, I remember one guy, Danny Rojo, he was, he was telling me, uh, he said, yeah, in one Bobby Suarez film, he said I had to jump from a third story, the top of a third story building, onto three banana leaves. Jesus. I said, how the hell did you survive that? He said, I was a professional. <laughs> And that was their attitude. You know, if you were good enough, you could land on three banana leaves and not a problem. Fuck it. You know. <laughs> but then, uh, oh, God, the, the worst story I heard was um, from Chris Mitchum, you know, son of Robert Mitchum, who was telling me about um, the first time that he went to Hong Kong to make a film. Um, it was a Bobby Suarez production. The guy did Cleopatra Wong. And he said he was watching these guys getting thrown off the top of a boat onto the deck below. 
these poor bloody stunt guys, you know, the the were snapping limbs and, and Chris says to the stunt director, Hey, have you, you thought about a two shot? And they're like, What? <laughs> and he said, Well, you know, you could film them jumping off the top of the boat and then you could cut to them landing. And they're like, Oh, two shot <laughs> And I think he at that moment, I think he probably saved the lives of a couple of hundred stuntmen. Oh, I bet. Well, I was telling my friend, I go, you know, like, wing wing. I mean, this was this was what he was doing. I'm sure they, if they said, hey, get in this cage, we're going to throw you over overboard, we'll get you. I'm sure he would have went with it. Oh, he totally would. And I did hear a story about him landing on uh, a couple of rows of cigarette packets. Jeez. So he was off the top of a building on a cigarette packet. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, you know, there's a um, a moment where he walks between two high-rise buildings in The Impossible Kid, um, and it looks like he's walking on a tightrope between two high-rises. It's true that was a tightrope walk. He didn't have a safety net underneath. He was walking between two buildings without a safety net underneath, and just a single wire attached to his back, and that, that was it. Because <laughs> the manager didn't even think about. You know, safety net. Ah, it's all right. It's just wang wang. He's he'll be fine. Yeah. And that that was the attitude. Ah, oh, he'll be right. Wow. Well, I I got a question for you here. So, um, we do something on Adventures in Video Land where it's called Versus, and we put two or three movies against each other. We have uh, twenty categories, everything from best quote to best scene. We have three people at the table. We have sixty awards, and um, you know, uh, what film wins the most awards? You know, that's the film that gets talked about at the end. And, and if we put it into our groups, what we call our pantheon. So uh, okay. just for any video landers that are listening out there, uh, maybe you can inspire one of my awards that I'm going to be giving. So what's your favorite scene um, out of those three movies that uh, that are accessible to us? And uh, what's your favorite quote? Can you, uh, can you give us that? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's got to be the bit where, it doesn't even have Wang Wang in it. It's got the goons talking to each other. And they're, they're pulling packets of drugs out of loaves of bread. And the head goon goes, there's a lot of dough in this dough. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Happy pushing. Just <laughs> <laughs> to cover every kindergarten and sandbox. We're going to teach those kids something about pleasure. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it, it is the most surreal and pointlessly mean piece of dialogue in the whole film. Is that in uh, For Your Height that, Only? That was, that was the moment where I realized I was watching something from a parallel universe <laughs> where, where the rules of, of decency and good cinema are being completely upended. Is that, in, is that in For Your Height Only? It's in For Your Height Only. I mean, the best lines are in for your height only that's that's because the film went to italy with executive producer dick randall and he gave it to the guys who used to dub the you know italian post-apocalypse films and giallo films and you know whatever have you so they they're obviously looking at this filipino spice spoof yeah and they, they look at the translation of the script and they're like nah <laughs> no way we're, we're just going to make this shit up as we go along and you can tell that they're pulling out Peter Lorre voices and and uh, Humphrey Bogart impressions you know <laughs> one day you're going to wake up and find yourself dead you know <laughs> crazy non sequiturs you know well, what's your favorite uh, wing wing scene like total sense <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite wing wing scene 
the scene with Wang Wang in it. Oh. If you could only have one, man, where are we going? Uh, okay, it, it's got to be the um, it's got to be the fight with Mister Giant. It's where you see a two foot nine midget battling a three foot dwarf. <laughs> oh, sold. And, and if you ever wondered, you know who would come out on top between a. a a midget and a dwarf. I mean, there it is, right okay. there. It's on film. Same movie? But, uh, but yeah, the fact that um, Mr. Giant takes so long to die, it's obviously he's being paid by the second. Oh, my so gosh. So he just emits this blood-curdling... Dude. just won't go... <laughs> I, I tell you what, man. We So after we watched your documentary, um, I think we started watching The Impossible Kid. And I go, stop, stop, stop. I go, this is... Perfect. I go, we have to put a, a do a three-way versus here. I don't even want to watch anymore. I want it to get my full attention. So in a couple of weeks, we're just going to devour those three films. But uh, the, the opening was where um, he's being, um, uh, he, he's going down like uh, the side of a building and he goes around all these yeah. rooms. Is that, is that, is that the impossible kid? Kid, yeah. That was awesome, yeah. dude. I was like, this. And he, and he runs and kisses a topless woman. <laughs> Out of nowhere, he kisses the topless like, woman. <laughs> These films were meant for kids, <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, this this is redefining children's entertainment by the second. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, so I have to ask, you know, I mean, you were um, all the films on your shelf at Trash Video, you know, I mean, Wing Wing's awesome, but you have you know, access to all of these cult films. I mean, why, what was it about Wing Wing, man, that stood out to you? Was it just the uh, novelty? Well, I think, I think I mentioned it before. I mean, part of it was the mystery. The fact that no one could crack gotcha. the Wing Wing code. Yeah. Um, but, but also there was, I mean, without um, that emotional connection, you know, so what if there's a mystery? I mean, I think the, the fact that, um, I formed this weird bond watching two foot nine James Bond going through his paces. I mean, you know, the, the humanity hooks you. Uh, it, yeah. It's not just, you're not just watching crippled masters where it's a guy with no arms, you know, and a guy with no legs combining forces. Um, there's something else at work. Um, yeah. I think that if you, if you don't get the humanity of, of Wang Wang coming through those films, then you're just never going to get it. Yeah. And you would understand why you would spend more than 20 years chasing a dream. You know, it's, it's interesting. You, know, you, you talk about the humanity, something that my friend and I were talking about. Um, if I remember right in the documentary, um, you talk about how um, his parents gave him up, right? It, it, correct me if I'm wrong. I forget how that went. Uh, in, in a way. Yeah, the, the mother didn't actually give him up for adoption. It's more or less he, uh, the mother who was also looking after four other children um, in various stages from childhood to early adulthood. Yeah. Um, being the fifth and youngest, uh, she just simply couldn't um, afford to feed him. And so when the Kabbalias came along and took an interest in... Um, putting him in their movies, she said, look, you, you, you can, you can have Wang Wang. He can be your wash boy or he, he can do your laundry. <laughs> he, he can, he can basically work for you for board and, and, uh, and keep just so he can survive. Right. 
in order for the family to survive yeah. as well as Wang Wang. So my friend and I, and, we were uh, talking about this after the doc, and uh, you think there was anything with the mom where if she had to get rid of one of them, that it was because of his handicap? Uh, yeah, because he he didn't go to school. Um, he got halfway through grade one before um, he gave up. Um, his, his soft voice gave him zero confidence and um, he instead just stayed at home and uh, his mom indulged him, you know, uh, let him watch TV. Um, he'd go and do acrobatics on the neighbor's clotheslines. And uh, he, he was basically the mascot of the neighborhood when he wasn't being dressed up as Santo Nino, yeah. you know, and paraded the streets of McLaren as the living saint uh, at the, on the yearly Santo Nino parades, then he was just basically um, being a, a kind of um, living an extended childhood. And it was only when he was in his early teens that um, he took up karate. And the owner of the karate school said, this is amazing, we're going to give you free lessons <laughs> so that we can put you in the window as, as a, like a, as a novelty act to, to bring customers into our karate school, it was there that uh, the Kavali discovered Wang Wang and decided that they could put him in. Because, God, what, what could be more amazing than a two foot nine black belter? Dude, I tell you what, man, he, so, he sells the karate too, man. When he's do when he has uh, the moments to, you know, practice his movements, you know, it's like he's given a hundred percent on screen. No, well, he he was. He was the real deal. I mean, the the karate school taught him so much, and I think he got to a black belt. But he probably he probably got that as an honorary belt, to tell you the truth. But then, when um, Eddie Nickart and his team decided to train him up to be a leading man, all of a sudden he got put through stunt school and martial arts school. And over the course of you know something like three to six months, he emerged from that king stunt man. And a, a fully fledged black belter in karate. Wow! And so when 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 people like um, Nelson Anderson, his co-star in Caliber Three Five Seven, who I interviewed for the book, he said, "Man, he he was the real deal." He said he he went through all of his patterns. He said he was throwing, you know, fully grown men across the room. Jesus, he was that good. And uh, so when you see him jump off the side of a building. That, that's him doing his own stunts. Um, when he's walking between buildings, he's, he's an acrobat. And um, that gun that he carries around, that's an actual twenty-five caliber pistol Damn. called a Senorita. And sometimes it was actually loaded with <laughs> real bullets. I don't doubt and it. So that's why Eddie Nickart says, you can't kid around with him because he might accidentally shoot you. <laughs> that's awesome. Have, have you seen a rise in popularity since this documentary? It's hard to say. Uh, I mean, Wang Wang on YouTube is the perfect YouTube phenomenon. You know what I mean? Like to to click on a clip of a karate kicking midget. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly what YouTube was designed for. <laughs> right. Um, as, as far as anyone wanting to actually delve into the world of Wang Wang, I, I don't know. Um, I, I do know that I've discovered like a, a tribe out there in my travels 
there's definitely um, a, a genuine cult of Wang Wang that um, you know appreciate the humanity behind the cartoon. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and I do. I love this. Really, I think this is really so fantastic. Yeah, I think this is such a fantastic story, man. It's actually one of my um, my favorite uh, uh, views of, of this year. I'm surprised I didn't know about this sooner, man. It, it really is like a kick to the nuts for me, man, because I think I know some stuff, and then along comes Wing Wing, you know, and I'm like, man, where has this been? I mean, I, I can't believe I didn't know about this. But um, do you feel like a proud father? I mean, you've become the ambassador of this movement. Oh, totally, totally. And, uh, you know, the family basically said, you know, Go, go forward with our blessing and spread the word, you know? So it's like, it's almost like being the high priest of the first church of Wang Wang. <laughs> you, even, um, you even have a tattoo yeah. on your shoulder, don't you? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I got that in back in 2008. I thought, I've got to mark my journey somehow. And so I got the tattoo in the Philippines. That's badass. It's, uh, just, the ta- uh, it's just the face of Wing Wing, right? It's the face of Wang Wang surrounded by um, a kind of like a halo of roses. That's awesome. It's, it's the, um, it, it's from... Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, you know, that kind of Mexican design of roses and re- light rays coming out of the face. Yeah. So I call it our Midget Guadalupe. And I, I, I think technically it's blasphemous, but, you know. Fuck <laughs> 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 it. Saint really fits the story, you know, when you <laughs> when you delve into the whole Santo Nino thing and you yeah. realize that people did genuinely believe that he had healing powers. Yeah. Like I've got those in the book too where I ran into a, one of his neighbors at a, a screening that we did outside of Wang Wang's house. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, you know, I've got a Wang Wang story. He healed me. I'm like, what the, <laughs> the guy goes, yeah, yeah, I fell over in the street, broke my arm. And he said, Wang Wang prayed over a pot of oil and rubbed it on my arm. Yeah, he healed me. Yeah. Oh, damn. It's in the can. <laughs> yeah. Nelson Anderson as well, you know, the Wang Wang's co-star, he said, yeah, the, the he said, I saw it on a number of occasions. That kid had the shining. He said, I can't explain it. There was just something about Wang Wang. Wow. So yeah, uh, had, as a collective, yeah, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Around him. Yeah, yeah. As, as a collective here, you've hit on it briefly, but how long did it take you to uh, to work on this project, all the, uh, the different years that you uh, worked on this? Well, I, I thought about it for the longest time, but then uh, 2006 was when I first got invited to the Philippines and I figured, well, I'll just take, I'll take a camera along and I'll just start asking people if they remember Wang Wang, not knowing where that was going to lead. But, um, I was just curious to know if, if people in the Philippines were as rapidly obsessed about Wang Wang as I was, yeah. it turned out that they weren't. But, um, from November, 2006, it took seven years to complete the documentary. And several of those years were, you know, out in the wilderness where the film had mutated into a different documentary called Machete Maidens Unleashed. All the funding went into into that, and I basically got fired off my own documentary. Wow. So I had to wait until Machete Maidens did the rounds um, before I could get the rights back. Okay. And, um, so, yeah, seven, seven years uh, until the documentary was completed and then another four years before I could get the book out, which had that much wider history of action filmmaking, in the Philippines included, as well as all the other stories about Wang Wang that had come to the surface 
since the documentary was completed. Well, I well, I salute you on that. Most people can't even stay focused for six months to a year, let alone you know seven. I think this is something that's important and needs to be you know uh, talked about. So yeah, that's that's amazing in itself. How long did it take you to get all your questions answered? I mean, how many trips to, all together did have you taken from Australia to the Philippines? Uh, well, I just got back from the Philippines. And <laughs> Still going. Wang Wang stuff. So that was, I think, trip 23. Wow. Has this become like a second home for you then? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wow. I spend um, somewhere between two to four months a year in the Philippines. It's, it's definitely my second home. Wow. And uh, it, it it just turns out that, you know, I've, I've got a third documentary in, in the works right now. That's what we're shooting at the moment, the Porn and Marcos story. Wow. And then... We've got two feature films that we're pitching. One of them is called Blood Red Sea. It's sort of like um, you know, modern pirates versus mercenaries in the south of the Philippines. No. Very violent, hyper-violent <laughs> action film. So are you going to film it? Uh, uh, well, that, that one's going to need a, a, about a half a mil budget. Okay. But there's a, a, a cheaper one that we're pitching at the moment called um, Black Parables. And it's kind of, we, we describe it as Pulp Fiction meets Breaking Bad in the south of the Philippines. It's like okay. these, these seven apocryphal <laughs> stories weaving around the meth trade, um, <laughs> all ending in kind of apocalyptic typhoon where everything turns to shit. Uh, so it's like a very black comedy, um, urban legend, um, action, black, black horror <laughs> uh, comedy. Cool. Musical, because there are karaoke moments. All <laughs> Technically qualifies as a musical. Totally mutant um, film, which I don't think anyone's ever done in the Philippines before. It's kind of like you know, a Mad Takashi Miike type. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> realist splatter. Um, so we're we're pitching that early next year as a as a feature film. Danny, my collaborator on Wang Wang, and I are co-directing that one. And uh, I think we might be able to get away with that. Yeah, and you, right. and you know your and you know your cult film, man. So I'm sure that's going to be uh, uh, pretty badass. Well, I, I read the script. We've got you know first draft of the script done, and every time I turn a page, I'm like, oh, what were we thinking? Yeah, it's so deep down the rabbit hole. This one. Well, you know, you know, for for someone who knows their shit, you know, I've I've read a couple articles, and you've been called the Australian Quentin Tarantino. Do you like that label at all? Uh, it, you, you can't avoid it. I mean, you know, I was I was that video jerk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was writing behind the, the counter. And, you know, people would come and go, huh, I bet you're like writing scripts like Tarantino. <laughs> like, damn it, I am. I am. And so it, it's a cliche now. It's a, it's a modern day cliche, but it, it was absolutely true. Um, and being the genre jerk, you know, you can't help but... Um, get the comparison with Tarantino, but like I'm, I'm so niche, I'm so unknown outside of the tiny circles that, uh, you know, you, you, you couldn't put a, put me and Quentin in the same universe. <laughs> so uh, you're not going to be uh, directing the new Star Trek movie anytime soon then? Uh, I've, I've got my own version of Star Trek. Uh, but <laughs> and that's the version I want to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, it, but it will be filmed in the Philippines. <laughs> Fuck yeah, it will. <laughs> 
So, uh, dude, how did you get all these interviews? Did you just start lining up the camera and be like, wing, 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 wing? I mean, because you got a lot of uh, interesting people in front of that camera. Uh, it, it was like that, yeah. At, at, um, at first, I went in blind. And I was just, like, pulling my camera out during the first trip going, do you remember wing, wing? Do you remember wing, wing? <laughs> and then you, you get that amazing sequence in um, the first part of the film where I've pulled the camera out and I'm talking to an editor in a in the film museum car park. And I said, do you remember Wang Wang? And he goes, yeah, I edited all of Wang Wang's films. And you can hear me from behind the camera go, no! (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And he goes, yeah, I edited it all, like all 10 of them. (laughs) Up until that point, I thought there was three. I'm like, no! (laughs) And you can hear my mind being blown over and over during that during that chance encounter and it was a little bit like that i remember finding the director of wang wang's first couple of films dante boy pangalina the, uh, he's the guy who's kind of like bluish and looks like he was filmed in a dungeon uh well that was his own karaoke dungeon he, he owns his own karaoke joint <laughs> somewhere in Blumentritt. so anyway I, I was sitting with uh, some of the old film guys um they were drinking goat soup and i was trying to avoid mine <laughs> and uh, we were just shooting the shit i was showing everyone my wang wang tattoo <laughs> and from the end of the table comes this voice i directed the wang wang's first film so i looked at this little jockey looking guy at the end of the table and i said sila sabawat bankita and he's like yes i said dante boy pangalina and he's like yes <laughs> <laughs> i was sitting at you knew you had that then. <laughs> With Wang Wing's first director. So, you know, when I say that there's something about Wing Wing, I mean, he's definitely guiding shit from the other from the other side of the veil, you know. Wow. It, it had to be because finding Wing Wing's editor in a car park and finding his director over a steaming cup of goat soup Damn. in a random in Kazon City. I mean, you can't write this shit. Yeah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> real going on behind the scenes well goddamn! i can imagine how much uh how many hours of footage did you shoot because i, I bet you got some bullshit there too right where people are like yeah i knew wing wing he's my fucking brother yeah kind of stuff yeah yes there was about 100 hours of interviews jesus christ 100 uh, hours how did you edit that down to a tight documentary well my editor spent three months in a log cabin in the <laughs> very good <laughs> with a gun to his nuts Just, <laughs> the log what was I why did I take this on but Fuck. but he you know and he, he the editor pulled out stuff I gave him a rough cut to to work by but he he pulled stuff out of that hundred hours that I didn't even see uh, so really I mean half the half the credit for the film should be Jim Scott the editor wow uh, who pulled together something out of you know, literally out of a, a mountain of rubble. Um, so, you know, kudos to him. Yeah, you need to buy this guy some goat soup because he did his job. He certainly did. Well, he, he flew himself out to uh, to Manila for the world premiere and we, we got to hang out. We got to hang out. I, I think he passed on the goat soup somehow. <laughs> but, uh, hey, all, hey, all the Philippine all the Philippine hookers this guy wants, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we could afford that. <laughs> you get a discount, huh? <laughs> That's awesome. We so we had some of the French duck embryos, you know, the balloon. 
Oh, so so I have some friends that are shooting some documentaries and and things like that. What did you shoot this with? Uh, Well, initially, um, I had a little um, Sony three chip camera. So all the all the fly on the wall stuff that was that was me over my first maybe three trips. Um, uh, it's all shot in four by three, so it, it was, it was awkward. Um, but I, I ended up, you know, I, I got some decent stuff in there somewhere. Uh, some of the talking heads are a bit rough and the sound is appalling cause I was using a shotgun mic, but, uh, I didn't think that it was going to be a, you know, a theatrically released documentary at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I, when I presented that footage to, um, ABC TV, they just looked at it and went, no, absolutely not. And that's why the film mutated into Machete Maidens Unleashed. They shook their heads and went, absolutely no way will we let this clown with a three chip camera anywhere near a TV quality documentary. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, so I thought, okay, well, um, I'll just go and shoot something else. When we finally went back to the footage, I realized that that guerrilla style shooting has a charm and has an aesthetic. Yeah, it does. To itself. That you really can't replicate with uh, a, a good HD camera. I mean, this is real fly on the wall. You can see my reflection in car mirrors and, you know, in the, in the rear vision mirror of Selling's Jeepney. You, you can't get access to places if you don't have a, a point-and-shoot camera. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't get into in, deep into the slums of Manila with a film crew. Yeah. Did you, you use your iPhone at all? You can, uh, Did you use your iPhone uh, at all? Visit one, uh, well, I didn't have an iPhone. Um, okay. I didn't have an iPhone until the yeah, but when we filmed Amelda five years ago, that was with an iPhone. Oh, okay. Uh, and we didn't realize half the time that our Filipino cameraman, Roy, was filming. So that was full gorilla, even without me realizing it. Because no. I, I thought, I, I, I said to Roy, you know, try and get some BTS footage. He filmed everything. He filmed Amelda taking some to on screen, you know, kissing the side of Ferdinand's glass coffin. You Which, that was crazy, by the way, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's why Danny and I kind of looked at each other after that. It, Roy was told, at that moment, no more photos. <laughs> so yeah. Roy goes, oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, not a problem. yeah, let's hold up for a second because you broke up just a little bit there, but that was a, that was a crazy moment in the documentary and I want to let uh, people or listeners understand Man, so you went with the Empress to the embalmed, her embalmed husband. Were you even yeah. expecting that? Uh, no. He's been no, dead since what, 1989? He, uh, yes, it's their return from the Philippines. Holy been fuck, in, uh, I bet that was crazy. Yeah, and, and you know what? That, that body isn't there anymore. He's, he's finally been buried in the cemetery of the heroes. You know, hey, I, ha- I hate to ask, but, you know, it's, it's what's on everybody's mind. Did he look good? Because you were pretty close to him. He looked as waxy and as candle-like as you would imagine an embalmed third-world dictator. Man, wow. <laughs> Apparently, they, they got the same guy who did Stalin and Kim Jong-un's father. So he, he basically did the big three. Wow. Including Ferdinand. 
<laughs> That's a documentary and, uh, right there, dude. You need to talk to that guy. Precisely, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think he's a anymore. He probably got silenced after, uh, you know, he'd be able to tell you exactly which bits were real. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. But, uh, yeah, like, I, I remember uh, Imelda was showing us the side of the wall, you know, um, this big printout of her um, mystical beliefs. And she was she got one of her aides to strip a, a tree branch, and she was using it as a pointer. And she was rabbiting on about, you know, her being the Filipino Eve and her husband being the Filipino Adam, that they they were the, the cosmic mother and father of the Philippines. Damn. The whole time, Penny and I are looking at each other at this sign saying, Mausoleum to the right and we were like she's not going to show us the dead body is she <laughs> she can't she, she can't no oh my god we're on the move and <laughs> in, in, into this concrete bunker it was totally black except for the illuminated body of Ferdinand you know in, in the glass coffin and we just kind of stood there in shock Roy's filming on his iPhone and she looks at me and she goes you know we're still waiting for a burial in the cemetery of the heroes. And I'm just like, yep, yep. Jesus. I don't know what the hell to say. And then all of a sudden she got, she got helped over these dying wreaths of flowers so that she could plant a kiss on the side of the glass coffin. Man. I'm like looking at Roy. Roy's filming this. I'm like, are you getting this? He's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. And then an aide walked up to Roy, patted him on the shoulder and said, no more photos. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I remember just shaking with with joy and dread as I walked out of that mausoleum, realizing that we'd witnessed something that hardly anyone would ever get to see. And Yeah, I love that. That was one of my favorite parts of the doc, man. Represents, yeah, right. In one moment that represents just how weird the search for Wang Wang got. It was being escorted in to watch watch her plant a kiss on the side of the coffin of, a, of its most infamous ruler. Wow. I thought, holy crap, Wang Wang has taken me into the inner sanctum of Filipino royalty. No shit, man. That was crazy, dude. And, yeah, and that was the moment where we said, I think we can finish this. I think we can try and get the rights back from Machete Maidens and finish this somehow maybe we could try crowdfunding yeah i bet that was did. a shot in the arm wasn't it damn yeah it was a it was adrenaline to the heart um yeah that reanimated the the the, the corpse of the search for wing wing wow and uh, within six months we um we'd already begun the um kickstarter campaign to get the money together to finish the film well, you know, like we talked about it briefly, but, you know, my friend and I were sitting on the couch just letting you know our experience. We were watching this couch and, you know, you're uh, you're drinking tea with the Empress, you know, and you're like, hey, I uh, got a, I got a question about Wing Wing. I'm like, fuck yeah, dude, that is so awesome. That's like someone from the Philippines coming here talking to Donald Trump about Bruce Campbell, you know? <laughs> that was so you awesome. That, yeah, and, and that, the reaction that we got um, in the Philippines when we first screened it, in 2013, it was at a university campus at uh, University of the Philippines Film Center. And that was a hotbed of left-wing anti-Marcos sentiment, you know, going back to the start of the Marcos years. So you can imagine a very left-wing campus. I thought, how is the Imelda stuff going to be received? 
we got to that moment where I'm sitting on the couch saying, what do you remember about Wang Wang? And for them, it was about as subversive a question as you could ever possibly ask. And so they lost their minds. They were cheering and whooping. And I thought, man, like, we got away with it. That's wild, we, man. We really did. And up until that moment, until that first screening in the Philippines, I wasn't sure just how the documentary would be received. But if we could get the left-wing rat bags totally behind it, then uh, we had it in the bag. Kind of like Wing Wing and Dewalt Wang. Yeah, and I, and I have a question for you. Something that uh, um, something else that my friend and I were talking about. You know the Empress's daughter that you were interviewing? Do you think that she was just divulging all this information or do you think that do you think she really cared about wing wing or was she just answering because a camera was in her face in the Philippines or wherever you filmed it? Uh, look, the, the thing about Imi is, I mean, she wasn't personally involved with hanging out with wing wing. She would have seen wing wing at the palace. It was more her brother, uh, bong bong okay. who ran for vice president with Duterte. He, he loved wing wing and they, they would hang out. Uh, Amelda thought that he was curious and indulged her son's fascination with Wang Wang. But Aimee is a very smart person. Okay. You know, she has something like four or five PhDs. Wow. Was educated in the West. That's she awesome. has you know, a, a, a sharper mind than her mother, and her mother hasn't forgotten anything. She knows exactly where the bodies are buried. So for Aimee to say what she did, I mean, it may be... Uh, diplomatic and kind of calculating and self-serving to a certain degree but man she knows what she's talking about and okay. she can straddle both the Philippines and also an outsider's perspective yeah, yeah. on Wang Wang and she can see um, the curiousness of Wang Wang for what it really is uh, without buying into too much sentiment Okay, and you know with the, the emperor and the empress you know um with their, with their dictatorship or whatever removed, I mean, they really brought the art of the Philippines to the forefront. Don't you agree? Oh, definitely. And and even violently anti-Marcos filmmakers would say the same thing. You know, and um, Peke Galiaga, who was interviewed for the film, also said, you know, him and his mates would go, um, I hate to say it, but wasn't it better under Marcos? <laughs> like, you know, during Corey's reign, uh, there were still the problems that existed under Marcos, but there was no assistance for film. I mean, basically, all cultural funding disappeared with the Marcoses. And even when Joseph Estrada, former action superstar of the Philippines, became president, even he didn't give anything back to the film industry. Wow. I mean, he was just concerned about keeping himself out of jail. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people talk about the Marcos is being intrinsically awful for the country. I mean, basically every president has taken their 10%. As a cab driver once said, everyone takes their 10%. Sometimes they take a bit more than 10%. But he said at least the Marcos has gave back. Yeah, yeah. And that is the revisionist position that a lot of people take. You know, as awful as they were, at least they weren't as awful as the presidents that came after them. Yeah, uh, which is why people in East Germany long for the return to the communist days because, in a way, they were better off under communism than they were under capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, do you... So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a weird kind of um, 
yeah, like uh, romanticism towards the Marcoses, which I, I understand, I don't agree with, but I do understand. Yeah. Now, do you have any negative or just interesting stories in the Philippines that didn't make the documentary? I mean, you're in the Philippines, man. Was that pretty scary? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I tell a lot more behind-the-scenes stories in the book. Okay, okay. So with the book, you get, you know, like a, a much more detailed Wang Wang bio, plus the historical context, you know, the, the wider history of fil- filmmaking. Plus, you get all the stories from the trenches. Okay. And, man, like, it, it, it's been hairy. Awesome. At, at some place, you know, you're, when you're in military checkpoints with a gun getting waved in your face. Oh, I bet, man. Most people don't will never know what that's like. Uh, no, no, and uh, and should you? <laughs> yeah. Should people actually put themselves through that stuff? I mean, it, the the thing is that the the, the craziness is addictive. And I think that's one reason why I keep going back there and digging as, as deep as I do, because there is a kind of frontier feel to a lot of the Philippines that you you can't find in ordinary Western society. Wow. And that that need to feel the rough edges is, is something that I think keeps dragging me back there. I'm not saying that it is it is a frontier town, but it, it can be. <laughs> if Man. you if you go looking for it, you will find it. Okay. And uh, so I think that that um, you know it's it's where adventure lies in in the weird spaces between normality. You know, is yeah. where all the the real crazy stuff happens, and that's where I instinctively go now. That's awesome. Well, I don't mean to keep you too long here, man, but I'm enjoying the shit of this conversation. Do you have enough time to keep it going? Absolutely, as long as you want, man. Awesome. So, were you disheartened by any of these uh, these facts that you've learned? I mean, because the the ending of this documentary, I don't know if you want to give it away, but it gets kind of sad. I don't know if you want to point people to the documentary, but uh, were you disheartened at all? Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty well on the record that you know he died poor and alone. And uh, when I started the documentary, the stories that I was getting, and and these are the ones that I've left in the first part of the the film. People were telling me, like the editor, ah, he was pampered, he was treated like a superstar. He was adopted by his producers and he was treated like a little prince. That was the the standard story, which the Caballas projected to the world through, you know, newspaper articles and, and telling their friends, oh, we're looking after this little guy, Nibod Mother and Godfather. That was bullshit though, uh, right? The... Uh, yeah, there was no adoption. Uh, it turns out that they just basically told the world that they were these benevolent figures that had taken this little slum rat, you know, into their into their care. Thing is about uh, Philippine culture, and, and if you've got like any Hispanic um, or, or Catholic friends, you you'd understand this that Ninong and Ninang is a sacred bond which is forever. Uh, you're you're basically taking on um, someone for richer or for poorer, if something happens to their parents, you are responsible for for their welfare. And, and uh, the fact that they violated the Ninong and Ninang bond and sent Wang Wang home after he had ceased to serve any useful function, yeah. uh, I think about a story 
for a Philippine audience really is a dagger in the heart to them, that they are now confronted by this gross violation of, of a sacred trust, uh, which is unfathomable. Which, which is probably why the producer never got back with you, right? Which is why I think that, yeah, they feel guilty as sin. And, and what are they going to say? Yeah, we, we screwed him. We totally screwed him. And um, you, you'll read in the in the book as well, I un- uncovered more evidence that, uh, that there were promises that were broken. And I think that, that when, it, when I discovered that, that was that was heartbreaking. I mean, I, I, I held out the faintest glimmer of hope that he was still alive. That was dashed as soon as I got there. Oh, no, he's dead. Went, oh, crap. Okay, so there's there's no surprise at the end of this. I'm not going to suddenly pull Wang Wang out of cold storage and go, ta-da! Yeah. But, uh, uh, the, but the facts of his story um, really got to me. I mean, I, I had built up a picture of this little kid you know, at least having a comfortable life after being brought up in the poorest slum in the Philippines. But then that was not to be either, that he he returned to his pre-star existence and he died in the same bamboo hut that he was born in. Man, that sucks. Still, that's still a palm tree leaf roof. I mean, how the hell... Does a producer make more than one million US and allow wow. someone to die in a bamboo hut? Yeah, is, that's crazy. Is, is, the, is the question that you know Cora will never be able to answer? Yeah, because I don't think she will ever face me and answer that question. No, no, there's no way. Yeah. So you're you're an Australian telling a Filipino story. How were you received yeah. initially by these people? Uh, I. I was, um, uh, I was, I may as well have been a Martian, you know, I, I turned up at this film festival in 2006 going, I love Wang Wang and I love Cleopatra Wong and I love <laughs> born. They're like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, huh? <laughs> and, you know, I walked up to Eddie Romero, you know, who's national artist of the Philippines is, is regarded as one of their greatest ever filmmakers. I walk up to him first night in the Philippines and I'm like, Oh my God, I get to meet the director of mad doctor of blood Island. <laughs> he just looked at me. And, oh, you're like, you're like Tarantino. I'm like, you. <laughs> you mother. <laughs> but, then, but, but then I thought, okay, if that's their way of dealing with this, uh, you know, with this bizarre situation, okay, that's fine. But um, the more they got used to me, the, the more that they understood that I wasn't just exoticizing their culture. You know, it, it wasn't like Tarantino, like he did in 2007, coming in going, oh, my God, this is all amazing. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, I'm going to make a film with Sirius Santiago. And I'm going to write a book about filmmaking. And then, you know, like six months later, it's like Philippines, Philippines who? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he never... Um, you know, carried through on the promises that he made back in 2007. But, uh, you know, I ended up, um, weirdly enough, I ended up 
doing guest lectures at universities in the Philippines, teaching them this alternate history of Philippine cinema, which they'd never heard of before. That's they crazy. Didn't know anything wow. About the films or the export films or the international productions, they didn't even know that Apocalypse Now was shot in the Philippines. Well, dude, well, dude it's but so then, it's but, so hard to break new ground, man. I mean, were you surprised that no one covered these B films, especially in the Philippines? Uh, I, I was I was disappointed that none of their own historians had even touched this stuff. But then I also realized that uh, there is a there was and probably still is uh, a certain degree of shame attached to their B cinema. That uh, these women in prison films and post apocalypse films and you know caped superhero movies not very not very progressive, <laughs> is it? <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's considered junk by most most right-thinking people, you know, particularly when you get into the academic um, sphere. Yeah, but the, but then again, some people's junk is other people's treasure, right? Beg your pardon? Some people's junk is other people's treasure, right? Well, that was always my line, and, uh, you know, they, they still went, yeah, I don't really buy that. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like junk. Full stop. I'm like, it's true. <laughs> I love this stuff. But I say, look, you know, the, but the more I, the more I delved into Philippine cinema, I, I started digging up their A grade stuff, their classic golden age of Philippine cinema stuff. You know, from the 40s and 50s. Uh, I mean, I watched everything. Because well, for a while there, they tried to become Hollywood, right? Didn't they have? They had some big players visit the Philippines. Oh, big time! Yeah, yeah, big time. And, um, you know, even the, even the B films, you know, like during the Kung Fu period and the straight to VHS days of the eighties, they were successfully able to export so many of their films to tiny little video labels in Finland and Greece, and Mexico and shit like that. Damn. So it, it was, um, it, it really was a mini Hollywood going on in the Philippines at the time, which is something they've kind of lost. Um, there, there's glimmers of hope now. Uh, I mean, Steven Seagal is in the Philippines right now shooting a TV series. Well, you look at South uh, Korea. South Korea, you know, filmmaking is blossoming. Do you think that Philippine has a, a, a chance to catch up with, like, say, say someone like South Korea? Uh, catch up? Maybe not, but I think they can make inroads into the international market to a, to a degree that South Korea has. Um, Thailand has been more successful, and Indonesia, and I think Philippines is probably the next country, the next you know hot place. Uh, all they have to do is just uh, bump up their accessibility, because a lot of the films that they make are intrinsically Filipino and don't travel well. What they have to do is make their films more palatable to a broader market. And then you will see some serious progress. Like last couple of years has been Tick Tick, The Aswan Chronicles, On the Job. Uh, some of Brillante Mendoza's art films have gone out into the international marketplace. And I think that's just the, the tip of the iceberg uh, or, or the crest of the wave that is going to break soon. Um, and, and I can see filmmakers like Richard Somez. Rico Oliade, uh, Pedring Lopez, there's a whole bunch of these like hot filmmakers that are going to break any day soon. You just know all they need is a film that will break them. Wow. And then it will carry a whole bunch of guys with them. 
So that's one reason why we're trying to get our feature films up and running in the, in the Philippines, so we can form a little chimp gang. We can all turn up to Cannes together, you know, be seen as part of a movement. Do you do you feel like do you feel like you have to like do you feel like you could mimic some of that old school filmmaking that they think is lowbrow and bring it to the the top of Philippine cinema? Uh, I I wouldn't mimic what has gone on before i think what you can do is just cherry pick cherry pick uh elements of it uh-huh. and then give them 21st century spin i mean there's there's one there's one thing that i really don't want to do and that is cannibalize the past yeah good deal uh, uh, in 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 my own feature film making um what i would rather do is do something that is genuinely now and new but having learned the the lessons from, you know, fifty plus years of exploitation filmmaking. You know what? It's like, like yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, like we talked we talked about the Tarantino label. You know, it is what it is. But you have all of this knowledge in the Philippines. You got a name. It seems like you could make some pretty cool shit in the Philippines, man. I I think I will. <laughs> I think I will. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I really think I, I can. And we've got a lot of friends there who are just going, come on, anytime you're ready, man, we're ri- we're willing and able. I know all the stunt dudes, you know, I know the camera guys. We've got the post-production studios lined up. All we need is the money. And I think we've got the money situation sorted out for next year. So <clears throat> you watch this space, basically. That's <laughs> awesome. It's very interesting shit coming out of the philippines that is a badass man yeah so you um you've talked about the book you know search for wing uh search for wing wing um is that is that uh, in documentary form or does it expand upon that material because you said it kind of goes into the strange dealings um oh yeah i mean the the book is i've been describing it to everyone as the documentary times 10 Wow. So buy the so documentary yeah, and then buy the book is what you're saying. Uh, I, I would say, yeah, watch the documentary first. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be going into some really dense territory. It's like un- uncharted waters <laughs> completely. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm talking in the book about, you know, the history of Filipino westerns, history of disco movies, wow. you know, the, the story of the Filipino village people. Um, it, it goes deep because each Wang Wang film has a, has a connection with, uh, some other story. And so if you can imagine that he's starting, uh, his films with Ramon Zamora, that guy was the Bruce Lee of the Philippines. And there's a whole like history of Bruce Lee alikes of Bruce exploitation coming out of the Philippines. Yeah. So you got to talk about that stuff. You've got to talk about the game of death that existed in 1974 Philippines, you know, five years before they decided to use that name for the the posthumous Bruce Lee release. You know, they were exploiting the Bruce legend pretty well while Bruce was still alive. They had films like Fish and Fury instead of Fist of Fury. And, and, um, oh, there was another great one. Instead of the, the big boss, they had the pig comma. (laughs) (laughs) 
So this is just vintage exploitation. Did they ever uh, get into special effects? Like, did they ever try their version of, like, say, I don't know, um, like fucking RoboCop or anything? Well, the Italians did a RoboCop in the Philippines called RoboWar. <laughs> so, uh, by default, it's a Filipino film. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they, they, they were really big on fantasy films, and they loved their superheroes. And it's weird, because I just found the other day uh, a film that's been lost since the 70s called um, Fantastica Meets Wonder Woman. They had the Filipino Wonder Woman back in 1976. The same actress who played Fantastica played Supergirl back in 1973. <laughs> I wow. found a 16mm copy of that that can never be re-released because Warner would come down like a ton of shit on them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, those films existed, and and you know this is the stuff that makes me happy seeing Western pop iconography going through the mincing machine. You know, and, <laughs> you know they throw in all their own. Like this, this Fantastic Meets Wonder Woman film has four sorcerers appear, and one of them has a, an army of tree monsters and bird people. Damn. You know, they, these are all like Filipino folklore getting thrown into the mincing machine along with wonder woman and, and supergirl and out comes this weird mince that is just so uniquely filipino even though it's kind of it's kind of uh familiar it's also incredibly specifically filipino and it's the same with wang wang i mean it's, it's james bond going into the mincing machine along with 50 years of filipino action films and the filipino wow. james bonds and coming out like this pink paste that could only ever come from the Philippines. And it, it it's a weird tasting at first, but, you know, you, you eventually get used to it and you're like, I need some more of this paste. Give me some of this. I need this sausage meat from Western <laughs> pop photography yeah. getting minced up with Dune cinema from the Philippines. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's I... addictive. That's the thing. It's, it, it becomes addictive because the weirdness suddenly becomes, you know, hyper weird on one level and then so uh, understandably normal on the other hand. Yeah. And that's where you realize you have gone so far down the rabbit hole that, uh, you know, there's no coming back. You know, no shit. I mean, we were, we were talking about Quentin Tarantino earlier and, you know, one of my biggest criticisms, my, my son, by the way, is named Quentin. Okay, that's how big of a fan I am of Quentin Tarantino. And uh, one of my biggest criticisms of him, though, is Grindhouse. I think it was like, I don't quote me on this, you know, but it was like it was like $100 million to do Death Proof and uh, Planet Terror. And I'm like, I think you missed the heart of what a Grindhouse film is. I mean, if you if you do yeah. get a chance to film Blood Red Sea, are you going to try to definitely go back to that old school filmmaking? I know you don't like mimicking, but cherry picking. Are you going to try to 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 give us that Grindhouse feel in the Philippines? Oh, totally. I mean, what what you what you do in that instance is you have like a half a million budget. Even that would probably be too high for a, to be a proper grindhouse budget. Yeah. But you, you you take your half mil and you film it in the most adverse conditions. You know, with the, with the most primitive conditions, and that is the spirit of grindhouse. You carry the spirit of Sirio Santiago on one shoulder and Bobby A. Suarez on the other shoulder and you go into battle and you battle the elements. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you, but you also try to come up with something that is, 
you know, uh, a, a mixture between the old and the new, you know, the, the, the 20th and the 21st century. So I totally agree with you that um, the Griden House totally missed the point. I think you needed one of those um, you know, five obstruction type situations where you're given 300,000 to go into the jungle and make a movie or to, to go out into the Badlands and make a film. Yeah, go into the heart of darkness with in, a limited budget. Yeah, fucking A. Like, so to yeah. give our listeners a clear picture of you, okay, do you go Franco Nero or Jamie Foxx? Oh, dude, come on. Yeah, I know, Franco Nero, right? <laughs> and you go Django, you go the original Django over or uh, Tarantino's Django, right? <laughs> Seriously, Jamie, please. <laughs> I know, I agree. I, I'm a huge Tarantino fan, but I'm early. I'm early Tarantino fan. Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown. You know, um, but first three films are untouchable. Untouchable, but I think he gets a little crazy. I love his The Thing homage or respect in in uh you know the Hateful Eight. But it's still like a little bit too Tarantino. I love Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. Kill Kill Bill is in our pantheon. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's when I started having problems. Oh, well, so you're not a Kill Bill fan? Uh, no, I, 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 I do like it. But I have problems with the obvious referencing. And that <laughs> yeah, is yeah. when it... Um, that, that's when Tarantino becomes, for me... Too referential. Okay, Tarantino or Kill Bill Two is when you. I think you start seeing that. Are you a Kill Bill One or a Kill Bill Two fan? Uh, one all the way. Okay, okay. So with our pantheon, you know, like it was, it was presented to us. We have a, a council, and we have nine council members, and we have to say yes or no. Um, it's a two thirds majority vote, and it was presented us as a full movie, Kill Bill One and Two. So we said yes, it's in our pantheon. But if I have to choose, if I'm going to a fucking desert island. Kill Bill 1 all the way. Totally, yeah. So, real quick, oh, man. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it, it's fun. It's, it's fun. fun film. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. Wing Wing has taken yeah. you from... Yeah, yeah. The, the, the second one is a chore. It's a, it is. It is. It's, it's, it has good beats, and it tells a complete yeah. story, you know, you know, whatever, but Kill Bill 1 is, is the... Uh, 20 minutes of vlogs. It is beautiful. Yeah, twenty minutes of singular monologues—that's that's never fun. <laughs> exactly, it's his, it's Tarantino's blessing and his curse. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, all the good and all the bad rolled into one, <laughs> or rolled into two. <laughs> rolled into two. So, Wing Wing has taken you from trash video to all over the fucking globe. What's it like looking back at the beginning of this this adventure? Oh man, I I could never have imagined well I, I, I think if I if you asked me back in 2006 where do you see this Philippine adventure going I, I would have said well I, I might get one or two trips to the Philippines and I might find some cool people and some cool shit but that might be it um, I I couldn't have imagined losing the shop for one thing yeah. but, but I think the shop had to go for me to be able to evolve and uh, as difficult as it was letting go of the shop, I mean, you know, staring down the face of bankruptcy makes you reassess what's important in your life. 
And I think one of the most important things to me was uh, feeling that I was doing something that actually contributed to culture rather than just renting movies to people. I wanted to make movies and, and show them to people. So I, I achieved that. Um, I wanted to get adventure in my life, which certainly wasn't happening, chained to a counter seven days a week, barely being able to make more than rent. Yeah. And so I was able to achieve that. I got adventure back in my life. And, and it was a complete transformation thanks to just sticking to finding the Wang Wang story and then being able to put it in a form that I could you know, tell to an audience. You know, to sum it up, so, would you would I mean, you say that Wing Wing gave meaning to your life then? Um, yeah. It's a, it's a yeah, deeper question. The only, um, no, I, I think that he is, yeah, he, he, um, he brought everything into focus that was important and he allowed the transformation to happen. So, I mean, that, that's a very powerful um, metaphor in your life. Yeah. To be able to um, suddenly go, well, this is what I want to do and this is the vehicle by which I want to do it. It was all Wang Wang. That's awesome. So that little guy, that little guy has been um, completely uh, the, 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 process through which i've been able to transform my life that's badass man that's that is so cool and to, and to work out what i meant to do in this life and that is to tell stories you know tell stories that that uh that bring meaning to their subjects you know you you really raised the bar man like i uh, i thought i knew some shit man until i i came across this Random article on Facebook, man, and it turned into like a, 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 a just a deeper conversation, man. This was so cool, dude. Oh, I'm glad you found me. <laughs> no, it's, and it's been a it's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to someone who you know gets it. You know. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of superficial appreciation of culture out there, but you know, like. You know, and I hate to sound like an elitist, but shit, man, you know, we've all got to live that game. You know, we, yep. we've got to get to the, the heart of what we truly love yep. to to be able to articulate what that then means and um, and to then be able to spread the love of that in a meaningful way. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? And that that's what Wang Wang has allowed me to do, to articulate exactly what I love about cinema. You know, for for all its crazy tangents and and joys, and, and <laughs> moments of random, what the hellness, uh, and then articulate. I'm not articulating it very well right now, but <laughs> but still, you know, th- this is this is what the conversation should start at. You know, what do we love about this stuff? Not what we find disdainful, or what do we find. You know, ah, completely outrageous. Oh, my God. You know, it's like, do you, do you really love this stuff? Why? And um, let, let's talk about why this stuff is so awesome. No, dude, I, I completely agree. Like, we do a thing on uh, Video Land here called, um, by, by the way, I don't know if you know too much about us, but Video Land, Adventures in Video Land. Video Land was a, uh, a um, 
a, a video rental store that I grew up in as a teenager. Videoland. Oh. So that's why I call it Adventures in Videoland. Like I grew up, you know, renting the, these. The store? Yeah, I grew up renting these VHS tapes, and uh, you know, like I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan, and you know, like I always ask people something. I'm very curious about your top ten films of all time. And uh, something I, I always say, it would be so easy for me to sit in this chair and tell you Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, or Raiders of the Lost Ark. But for my yeah. number one, I've reserved for a very special movie. And it's, it's something that touched me in a very special way. And it's, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's, 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 it's Tom Holland's Fright Night. Have oh, you ever... yeah. I remember seeing that as a new release. Yeah, yeah. That was, that's yeah. my yeah. favorite the film video, of all time. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, I'm, I'm the video shop generation. I mean, I practically, I, I remember around that time I was volunteering in a video shop because, <laughs> because <laughs> I just wanted to talk to people about movies. <laughs> and so there I was as a 15-year-old back in 1985, like saying to people, oh, I think you should really watch Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, yeah. But it's two yes, it's twice as good as any other film. Yeah. So... Yeah, fright. So, yeah, fright I, Night's my go-to, fright man. Like if I if, if I have to pick yeah, one, man, it's so, Roddy McDowell, uh, it's Chris Sarandon, it's fucking Fright Night, man. It just did it for me, man. Well, I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch that. I, you know what? I don't think I've seen that since the '80s. Oh, dude, Brad Brad Fidel score, dude. When you watch it again, listen to that Brad Fidel score. It is fucking awesome. Chris Sarandon owns the vampire. You know, it, it, it's my, like, I think that people should own their number one movie, you know, like, like they should own it in their heart. And like, you know, people come over like, eh, I don't know, man, I just didn't feel frightened. I'm like, that's cool. That's cool. But Fright Night, it's my movie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So would you say that's your yeah, movie no, is, totally. is for your height only? Your height only? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, yeah. But, but my, the rest of my top 10 would just be this ever changing you know, amorphous mass of probably about three to four hundred movies, which I, I can't <laughs> let. I mean, you know, there's everything in there from, you know, Britannia Hospital and Oh Lucky Man to, uh, you know, the collected works of Mel Brooks. <laughs> yeah, right. Dude, yeah, I've had you, you, you have no idea, dude. I've had such a crazy week. To, this week has been Wing Wing. And Star yeah. Wars: The Last Jedi. That's all that's in my mind, and you can't get further. Apart than those two movies. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, besides Wing Wing movies, what are some other... I mean, you you got the knowledge, man. You own the video store. What are some other films that my buddy and I should watch on the couch? What are some other films? Um, have you ever... Okay, speaking of diminutive-sized uh, actors, have you ever seen a movie called The Dwarf? I have not. Okay, it's, it, it's like Death Wish... But with a dwarf. Oh, holy fuck! That's on my cue now. Yeah, like local toughs destroy this dwarf's bicycle, <laughs> and so he goes to get the toughs that destroyed his bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it stars the guy who was on, you know, that rock band, the Dwarfs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the the dwarf on the front cover of most of their early albums was this guy. <laughs> And I think he only ever starred in one film, and it's this crazy New York exploitation film uh, where it and, it and it touches on Maniac as well. It, it's like he has all these mannequins um, dressed as a rock band Damn. Uh, in his apartment. 
And so he spends half of his time like pretending to play in a band with mannequins and the other half tracking he's like New York tough stout who broke his bike. Man. It's just amazing. Okay. And no one no one's ever seen that film. It's Ooh. it's crazy. It was like made I think in some point in the in the 80s in New York. Well, maybe I should rephrase that question. Is this something that I can see? Is this accessible to me? Uh, dude, it's, I, I can send you a copy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the dwarf. Brother. <laughs> yeah, but there, oh, there's, a, there's one that you can see on YouTube. Have you ever seen W is War? Mm-mm, no. Okay, talking about Death Wish. This, this is like the Filipino Death Wish meets Mad Max meets Mad Max 2. I'm a, I'm a huge fan, by the way, of the vengeance sub-genre, man. I'll, I'll watch fucking sub, or uh, Charles Bronson okay. movies all day. Cool. Well, okay, this, this guy, right, this this uh, policeman called W, uh, he gets his dick cut off in the first third of the film. I'm sold. And uh, his wife ends up having to sleep with other men, so it drives <laughs> him crazy. So he ends up going after the satanic, the gay satanic bike gang that cut his dick off in this metal covered car and he drives into their compound. There must be like a thousand Filipino stuntmen all getting blown up. Uh, they've all got their heads shaved and they're all playing these <laughs> games. That one. Yeah. Look up W is war. That will completely blow the top of your head off. <laughs> dude. I'm, I'm sold already, dude. <laughs> that is crazy. Type in Filipino Mad Max, any of those films, you know, I, I would say it would be worth watching. Okay. But yeah, if, if people go, oh, what, what's another weird Filipino film I should watch? I'm like, W is War. Go for it straight away. <laughs> another great one, The One-Armed Executioner by the director of, um, they call it Cleopatra Wong. In fact, all three Cleopatra Wong films are just brilliant. Um, yeah, I think anything with, uh, with dwarves in it, and the Philippines, um, it, it's a it's a gift that keeps on giving. Dude, I'll, I'll never forget the first, you know, like exploitation or, you know, like at, at this point, you know, Evil Dead Two is pretty mainstream. But when I watched it back in the day, Evil Dead Two was that movie you picked up at Suncoast, you know, at the mall, you know. And I'm like, you know, what the fuck is this? I pop in Evil Dead Two. This is before internet, you know, and you see the case with the with the skull in the in the eyes. And I pop it in, and it was like the coolest shit I've ever seen. And there's this other movie, you know, as, as an adolescent, I picked up this movie called Love in Hot Leather. And it was just this midget going around fucking everybody. And I was like, man, I grew up uh, very, uh, how do you want to say, very church going. And my, my mom found this under my bed. And she's like, what the fuck is this? You know? And <laughs> I was like, this, this is cinema. This is better than fucking Godfather. What are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, there's well, there's nothing. Me, man. I've never heard that. One. Dude, look up Love and Hot Leather, but it's like you know, it's it's these these you know, films. That's the first thing I'm going to be doing when I get off the off the phone, you realize this. <laughs> <laughs> Love and Hot Leather, man. I remember uh, going to Video Land back in the day. I was supposed to be at church, but I ran two blocks to uh, to Video Land to rent this movie, and I lied about my age so I could take it home. It was the craziest shit I've ever seen, man. But it's those movies there. I mean, like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, they're great. But it's these rare gems, you know, that no one else sees, that that, that just puts a smile on your face, man. So I'm so glad that you're doing the stuff with Wing Wing. Yeah, well, that, that was what I was also trying to do with the video shop. Because um, when I opened Trash Video, it was 95, and Blockbuster started to take over the video industry here in Australia. And what I remembered from my video shop going youth, you know, like back in the 80s, all the way through high school, 
I was trying to replicate in that shop, but concentrated, you know, with all the all the good shit into the one shop, yeah. which is what Blockbuster was destroying. And that that uh, joy of discovery, and this is before the internet too, like that joy of picking up a video case, looking at the cover, and going, "What the hell is that?" Turning it over, reading the description, and going, "Whoa, that sounds <laughs> amazing!" Actually taking a punt, and and that being the adventure, you know, of thing. I, I can't imagine this film being any good, but what the hell? <laughs> the, yeah, like you like you found something, right? Amazing. Yeah, exactly, and I think. The internet has destroyed that feeling of adventure. If you if you now think, oh man, I can download just about anything, that's a lie. For starters, <laughs> that's an illusion that no one can sustain when you actually do go looking for stuff. Um, but the idea of there being access to unlimited information about anything that really kind of kills that that joy of discovery that you used to have walking into a video shop in the eighties. Well, can I or, can, or can I share something with you real quick? Like, yeah. dude, there's this there's this video chain. I don't know if you've heard of it called Family Video. Have you heard of that? No, but it sounds ghastly. God damn, man! Like uh, back in the day when I was growing up, the reason I found Evil Dead Two was because I went to the horror section, right? I did this video where it blew my fucking mind, dude. We were doing an Indiana Jones three-way. We were really trying to focus in with our verses. Like, what is the best Indiana Jones movie? I went in there and, you know, I, I was waiting for someone to buy, you know, like the, the, the uh, Blu-ray trilogy for me for Christmas, my wife. And uh, so I didn't have it yet, so I went into Family Video and I was like, okay, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know how many sections they have? They don't have an adventure section. They don't have an action section. They have... Um, A through Z, they have shit that you must see now. They have um, nearly new. They have new. They have classics. They have um, stuff that should be classics. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Back in the day, I would go to the horror section, and that's how I would find Evil yeah. Dead. You know, like they had um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was trying to, I was picking up that, and uh, they didn't have Raiders of the Lost Ark in the classic section. You know where they had it? Where? They had it in the, the shit you must see. Isn't that classic? So it was next to fucking Rain Man. Do they think that that myself, oh, I would go in there and I want a double feature of Raiders of the Lost Ark and Rain Man? Uh, this place had their shit turned upside down. Yeah, shit ain't right out there. No, shit ain't right out here, that's <laughs> for sure. I get the video shop going just to, you know, give a virtual finger to these damn <laughs> assholes. I mean, how did you have your video store? It was horror, action, adventure, right? Shit like that? Or was it A to Z? Well, you know, we, we had horror. We had horror directors. Uh, but then, you know, guys like Sam Raimi kind of were in the cult director section. Then there was French horror in the, you know, the international section. It was all over the place. <laughs> but but uh, if a director deserved his own section, he got one. So we had Jess Franco, Lucio Fulci, you know, Sergio Martino, <laughs> uh, Sam Raimi, of course, uh, uh, all in their respective sections where they should be. And the 60s biker films where they should be. The um, black exploitation where it should be. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure, dude. Wait, so my friend and I, we're talking, we want the best haunted house movie ever made okay that has creepiness right. what is the, what is the best haunted house movie oh dude 
from from yeah, your yeah, perspective, yeah. because we've been through everything that we know, so we're trying to find the best haunted house flick. Well, you know the one that creeped me out the most. What's that? And it, it's a strange, it's a strange choice, but the others with Nicole Kidman. Oh, really? <laughs> it freaked me out so much, and and I'm a sucker for ghost films. <laughs> I'm looking for that cult film, man. That cult film that we haven't seen. Well, yeah, you mean a a cult haunted house film? Yeah, is there anything like that at all? Uh, Well, Haunted House of Horror with Dennis Price. Yeah, yeah, so Wing Wing never made a haunted house film. (laughs) There's no haunted house films. And there's no haunted house films from the Philippines. (laughs) God damn it. I can't pull one out. I guess. Nicole Kidman had the had the edge on all those other haunted house films for me. Go figure, hey. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, I've I've kept you long enough, man. I've enjoyed the hell out of this conversation, man. It's going down. This is episode two hundred and fifty. Oh, this is two hundred and fifty one, and this is probably one of my this is top five of my favorite conversations of all time, man. I I have absolutely enjoyed my time here. So, what's next for you, man? Uh, well, shit, man. Like, I'm, I'm shooting two docos right now. One of them's the, the Marcos one, the Marcos and porn one, or erotic cinema during the Marcos era is the polite, uh, description. Uh, I'm also doing, um, a documentary about a degenerate Melbourne punk rocker called Fred Negro. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and the, you know, sort of wild history of, melbourne punk music it's called pub because most of it takes place in a pub <laughs> and um then we've got yeah two three maybe feature films that we're pitching that uh hopefully we'll get funding in the next 12 months but um aside from melbourne it seems that all roads are leading back to the philippines yeah. and i can't imagine that that's ever not going to happen even if i do get a chance to do more stuff overseas hell man like philippines is where it's at for me man that's awesome dude i mean you're you're keeping people like me on my game because i thought i was i was doing the 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 living the life man but you you're living the adventure man and that's that's badass oh thank god as well because if i was still chained to a video shop counter right now i don't think i <laughs> don't think i'd be in that good a mood isn't that crazy so, how we think we have the business and we own the business and we're doing good and within our with our own tribe but there's a whole world to explore and that's what you've kind of elevated to you know you you've gone out and you've explored man and i think that's the meaning of life man is exploration uh i i yeah and i'm this is the thing i mean you know when you when you get to a when you get to a certain level where you feel so jaded, you think, oh my God, there's nothing new to discover. And you realize that there is, that's the fuel that keeps you going. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, the fact that even in this age of what we believe is unlimited access to everything via the internet, that there are still corners of the world that are, that are left unexplored. And I think that's awesome. And I got a sneaking suspicion that Africa is calling soon. Dude, no shit. That's exactly what I take away from this conversation. Like, you know, as a person who does, you know, like we're on 251 episodes, it's like, you know, I can talk about Star Wars The Last Jedi 
and like what you know fucking millions of people are talking about star wars the last jedi but man you've really tapped into something ahead of the game that people aren't talking about and that is wing wing and that that is so cool man that there's shit still out there that is untapped and that's what i take away from all this man is that there's something still out there whether it be wing wing or you know whatever it is that is still untapped and it takes it's gonna take you to go out there yeah it's so cool man yeah, well, there's still books to write, man. There's still documentaries to make, and there's still corners left unexplored. Thank God, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm just gonna keep running, I think, and uh, yeah, keep the adventure going for as long as I can. Awesome, Andrew. And, and I hope you're gonna be checking in from time to time oh. to see uh, where the adventures take us. Oh, <laughs> fucking a, dude, Andrew. Thanks for talking with us. Where can Videoland fi- find you? Where can we buy your shit, dude? Where can we buy your book, your uh, your posters, whatever just, it is? Yeah, just find me on Facebook. Simple as that. Um, I'm always on Facebook. I mean, there, there there are blogs out there, but I hardly ever check them. You know, <laughs> just doing so much crap. But you can always find me on Facebook. I'm the only Andrew Leavold on there. So, uh, yeah, mate, come and uh, send me a friend request and uh, I can send, sell your book, no worries. Or a T-shirt. <laughs> or, uh, or or, or uh, genuine uh, parts of, of Wang Wang. <laughs> I can't back that up. <laughs> no, that is awesome. Uh- <laughs> To our listeners, man, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Video Land. We're on Tumblr, we're on Instagram, we're all, uh, we're all over the place, but the conversation begins and ends on Facebook. You've been listening to Criticism in its finest hour. Until next time, my good people, peace out. What's up, Video Landers? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. <laughs> My daughter's in the studio with me while I record this intro, and she's laughing at me <laughs> while I'm recording my intro. What's so funny? What's so funny? Because I'm pointing when I'm saying, What's up, Video Landers? You sound dumb. Oh my god. Okay, we're going to start again. What's up, Video Landers? I'm your host, Fred Hawkins. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Dad, don't laugh and I won't laugh. Don't laugh. Why are you in here? I wasn't laughing. Jeez, hang on. Stop. What's up, Video Landers? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. Quick reminder, you can find us on AdventuresInVideoLand.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Video Land. Tonight, I talked with Australian filmmaker Andrew Leobold about his documentary. <laughs> what are you laughing about? Stop! What, what's so funny about my this this conversation? Nothing. This intro? Nothing. Why are you in tears? No, that's how, I, that's how I laugh. Let's start again. Dad. What's up, Video Landers? I'm your host, Brad. <laughs> what's so funny? What is so funny? You need to sit on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny? Nothing. Jesus. What's up, Video Landers? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. Quick reminder, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Video Land. 
Tonight, I talked with Australian filmmaker Andrew Leovold about his documentary, The Search for Wing Wing. <laughs> What's up, video landers? I'm your br- Okay. What's up, video landers? I'm your host, Olivia Hawkins. Quick reminder, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Video Land. Tonight, I talked with the Australian filmmaker Andrew Leovold about his documentary, The Search for Wang <laughs> 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 yeah. Wang. Wang. The documentary is a detective story, a biopic about a Filipino man. It's one of my favorite experiences this year. Please welcome Andrew Leovold. Le- Leovold. Let's listen to it. 